Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of violence and disturbing graphic imagery. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Piper's interest in Lizzie Borden began with a children's rhyme. What started as a weird saying between her and her friends grew into an interest in the Borden case itself and what it said about America. A study in small-town politics and shame. And so, she booked a trip to the Lizzie Borden B&B to celebrate her college graduation. What else was a cum laude history major to do? The tour guide rehashed what she already knew as they stood in the Borden's parlor, the same room where Lizzie's father had died. A pair of frightened teens screamed at every creak and groan of the house. Piper gave them a sympathetic smile, reminding them that this was just an old place. They were safe. She had arranged to stay in the guest room where Lizzie's stepmother, Abby Borden, had died. Framed crime scene photos reminded guests what had happened here. The antique furniture added to the ambiance. Piper stayed up as long as she could, waiting for something, anything to happen. But her eyelids slowly began to droop in the silence, until finally she succumbed to sleep. She woke to something dripping onto her face. It was warm and thick. She wiped it off, bringing her fingertips up to her face. Blood. Piper sat up slowly. A steady rhythm of metal against bone reverberated in her ears. She wanted to tell the staff to tone down the theatrics. She stood up and noticed a white sheet on the floor, a mass lying beneath it. Piper lifted it slowly. Abby Borden's remains were exposed to the air. The smell of decomposing meat was overwhelming. She turned the body over, expecting it to be a mannequin or an actor, something to match the campy signs that said, watch your head, and the clerk dressed as Lizzie in the gift shop. But the flesh felt real and cold. There was no mistaking the carnage of what had once been Abby's face. Piper heard a rustling behind her. She turned to see Lizzie smiling as she raised the hatchet again, bringing it down on Piper's face. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast Museum, the crime scene of one of the 19th century's most infamous murders, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted.
On August 4, 1892, 69-year-old Andrew Borden and his wife Abby were found dead in their home in Fall River, Massachusetts. They'd both been hacked to death with a hatchet, to the point that their faces were unrecognizable. He was killed in the parlor in the middle of a mid-morning nap, while his wife appeared to have been attacked in the second-floor guest bedroom. Andrew's youngest daughter, 32-year-old Sunday school teacher Lizzie Borden, was tried for the crime, but found not guilty. What are the trials of the century? Lizzie's story has inspired everything from nursery rhymes to a lifetime television series. The site of the Borden murders, a three-floor house at what was then 92 Second Street, is now a bed and breakfast. You can take a two-hour night tour of the home and sleep in the bedroom where Abby Borden was murdered. Fall River was in its golden age in 1892, known as the Spindle City for its many textile mills. Andrew Jackson Borden invested in several of these mills and was the head executive of one of the town's largest banks. A carpenter and coffin maker turned self-made business owner, at the time of his death, his estate was valued at $300,000, or over $8.3 million in 2019. Despite his wealth, Andrew Borden was a famously tight-fisted man. He refused to pay for the house to be renovated for electricity and indoor plumbing, and was rumored to have cut the feet off of corpses to save money on wood for his coffins. Andrew's first wife, Sarah, gave him two daughters who survived infancy, Emma Leonora and Lizzie Andrew Borden. Sarah passed away when Emma was 12 due to uterine congestion. Andrew quickly remarried in the interest of providing a mother for his two daughters, but Emma had promised her mother that she would take care of Lizzie. Both girls viewed their new stepmother, 37-year-old Abby Gray, as an interloper and verbally abused her when they weren't giving her the silent treatment. Is it any wonder why many of the citizens of Fall River suspected the emotional violence became physical? The heat soaked into Abby's skin until she felt her body was going to burst. Summers in Fall River weren't meant to be this hot, but she did her best under the circumstances. She always did her best. Her stepchildren refused to speak to her most of the time, but she got by. Lizzie had recently moved from referring to Abby with a strange, cold and informal reading of mother to refer to a slightly less disturbing but still distant Mrs. Borden. It did not even matter that both stepchildren were allowed to make decisions usually reserved for the lady of the house. Abby had been built to endure hardship. She could withstand this. She had a decent allowance, and she truly believed that she had Andrew's affection, even if he refused to wear a wedding band. Instead, he wore a small gold ring that Lizzie had given him. She did not comment. It wasn't her place. Still, Abby resolved to endure the stifling summer heat and the icy stare of Lizzie's gaze as she went about her chores, setting the household to rights. She may not have been in charge of this family, but she was still a part of it. Abby asked Lizzie if she was willing to set the table, looking much more like a child than a 32-year-old should. Couldn't Maggie do it, she asked, referring to the family's Irish maid. Abby politely explained that Bridget was working outside. 
She never understood why Lizzie and Emma so insisted on calling Bridget by their previous maid's name, but it made her extremely uncomfortable. Lizzie nodded her head curtly. Her smile was sickly as she went to the cupboard and got the plates and cutlery. While Lizzie worked in the dining room, Abby tended to their dinner. Swordfish wasn't the most desirable meal in this heat, but it was what they had. Andrew was frugal with the accounts, and he would appreciate them using leftovers rather than heading to the butcher. She sprinkled some dried herbs on top before letting it warm over on an open fire. A clatter came from the other room. Abby left the comfort of the kitchen to ask her stepdaughter what happened. She rounded the corner and came face to face with Lizzie, holding a knife upraised, a pile of shattered china on the floor. Abby took a deep breath. She calmly asked Lizzie to explain what had happened. Lizzie said she had seen someone peeking through the windows. She meant only to scare them off and had knocked over the plates in the process. Abby stepped closer to Lizzie, removing the knife from the other woman's hands, reassuring her that it was all right, even though she felt something other than fear radiating from her stepdaughter's body. Abby used her apron as a makeshift basket, picking up the pieces of broken ceramic off the floor. When Abby had collected each and every piece, she tried to address Lizzie again, but her stepdaughter was gone. Abby put the jagged pieces into the dustbin and went back to the kitchen. Lizzie was prodding the swordfish. Abby asked her to leave well enough alone and continue to set the table. Lizzie stared at her for a long moment, her eyes inscrutable. At dinner, Abby could not stop thinking about Lizzie's expression. There was calculation behind her eyes, dark delight. Tired from the heat and the trouble she encountered in the household, Abby ate like the dying. She shoveled food into her mouth, grateful for each and every morsel. It was only when she'd finished that she noticed Lizzie's eyes staring at her again, a soft smile on her lips. Lizzie had barely touched her plate. She moved her fork around the ceramic, taking small bites here and there. Her eyes never left Abby's. After dinner, Abby tried to embroider, but she still could feel Lizzie's gaze. She asked several times if something was the matter. Lizzie smiled, saying everything was fine. Abby was forced to go back to her work. But then, pain racked her body. Her stomach roiled as though someone had plunged a dagger into it. Abby gasped, grabbing the handles of the chair for support. The dagger withdrew slowly and stabbed her into the stomach again. She screamed. Lizzie was by her side, asking what was wrong. Abby could not breathe around the pain, much less get words out. She gestured for Lizzie to help her to bed. Her stepdaughter did so, urging her not to worry. But there was a vacancy to her speech, and she was calling Abby mother again. Mother, that one word, the word she hadn't heard in months, struck fear in her heart. Lizzie was not herself tonight. Abby wanted to question it, but she couldn't move without her stepdaughter's help. 
they made the journey to the bedroom together. Abby's foot caught on the door and Lizzie pulled too hard, sending her sprawling onto the floor. Abby's stomach churned and acid clawed its way up her throat. Lizzie took her time helping Abby back up. She chided Abby for not being more careful. All manner of terrible things could happen in this house if one weren't paying attention. As much as she wanted to cast Lizzie's arms off of her, Abby needed her too much right now. She held on for dear life as Lizzie laid her down. Lizzie was smiling in satisfaction as she placed a cloth over Abby's eyes. In the darkness, she heard the door shut, but she didn't trust that Lizzie was gone. Instead, she waited. Her stomach burned and her throat was sore, but terror distracted her from the worst of the pain. Someone was breathing in the corner of the room. Abby removed the cloth from her head and strained her eyes, but there was nothing. She fell into a fitful sleep. The next morning, Lizzie was standing over Abby's bed. She asked how Abby had fared through the night. Abby told her she was grateful to have survived. She could have sworn that Lizzie grimaced for the briefest of moments, but it was gone in a flash. Lizzie was back to referring to Abby as Mrs. Borden. The night had been like a fever dream, some strange mirage of sickness and kindness that didn't quite align. Abby visited her doctor, but he told her the fish was the problem. She had the summer's complaint. In her mind, she saw Lizzie's cold stare. She begged the doctor to examine Andrew. He had been struck down with the same illness. Andrew refused to be seen. Too expensive, he growled. With both men saying that Abby was overreacting, she had no choice but to capitulate. Once again, she was overruled in the Borden house, treated as an inconvenience rather than a member of the family. For dinner, Abby decided to avoid fish entirely. She went to the butcher and bought a fresh leg of mutton. The lamb had been slaughtered that morning. No one could have come into contact with it. Abby spent the evening preparing dinner, never taking her eyes off of the mutton for more than a minute. She did not see Lizzie around the house at all. When Lizzie did finally make her presence known, she complained that she had been up the night before with the same ghastly affliction, though not as bad as Abby had. Abby didn't entirely believe her, but she wished Lizzie well, saying that she believed tonight would be better. Lizzie's face was hard, but her words were soft as she politely agreed with Abby and then offered to take over dinner preparations. Abby declined. She nursed the mutton stew for several more hours before calling everyone to dinner. The kitchen was a flurry of activity while everyone served themselves. Abby was proud of herself. She had protected the food from any tampering. Andrew offered to get Abby serving. She agreed, taking a seat at the table and waiting for him to come back. He placed a bowl in front of her. Lizzie entered the kitchen a second later, carrying her own bowl. Abby dug into the rich and meaty soup. She had gotten the taste exactly right. Lizzie heaped praise onto Abby's cooking. Abby looked up from her bowl. Her voice shook as she thanked Lizzie for her kindness, not trusting Lizzie's words. Andrew added that Lizzie had helpfully prepared Abby's bowl for her. 
he had just delivered it. Abby's blood ran cold. She'd already eaten half the bowl. She jumped from her seat, sending her chair flying backward. She took several steps forward, trying to get to the door. If she could leave the house, she could find the doctor. Abby collapsed two feet from the front door. Lizzie clucked her tongue and lifted Abby up, pulling her arms so tightly she was sure to have bruises later. Lizzie smiled warmly at Andrew as she told him that she would do everything to give Abby exactly what she deserved. On August 3rd, 1892, Lizzie Borden requested a bottle of prussic acid from a Fall River druggist named Eli Bentz. A diluted form of hydrocyanic acid, this quick-acting poison is transparent and colorless, making it the perfect weapon for a would-be killer. Lizzie explained that she needed the prussic acid to put on the edge of a sealskin cape, which had been given to her by her father, but Bentz told her he could not dispense the drug without a doctor's orders. Lizzie insisted that she bought the poison before, but he stood firm, and she left empty-handed. Lizzie's animosity toward her stepmother Abby was a matter of public record. She once chewed out her dressmaker for referring to the new Mrs. Borden as her mother, calling her a good-for-nothing thing. The Borden sisters believed that Abby had married their father for his money, a view they felt was confirmed by his agreement to help Abby's sister avoid homelessness when he purchased a share in her home. The Borden sisters greatly resented this transaction, even though they were given the same sum. Lizzie constantly urged her father to move them to the affluent Hill District of Fall River so she could entertain guests the way the lady of the house should, even though she wasn't supposed to be the lady of the house at all. The always frugal Andrew ignored his daughter's demands, but he also did little to support Abby. Lizzie and Emma were free to use their weekly allowance as they saw fit, while Abby was expected to use her allotted funds on household expenses. Andrew never bought Abby a ring, but Lizzie bought him a small gold band that he wore on his finger until the day he died. Two days before the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden, the Borden household became afflicted with a shared stomach issue. Abby's doctor, Seabury Bowen, assured her that it must have been an issue with the swordfish they had been served for dinner. But when only Andrew, Abby, and Emma became sick the following day after the meal of mutton stew, Abby told Dr. Bowen that she believed she was being poisoned. Lizzie herself expressed her fears to a friend named Alice Russell, alluding to mysterious threats against her father by unnamed men. I feel as if something is hanging over me that I cannot throw off. It comes over me at times, no matter where I am. I don't know, but somebody will do something. Up next, Lizzie's prediction comes true. Now back to the story. One of the reasons Lizzie Borden became a suspect in her father and stepmother's murders was her odd behavior and changing stories over the course of the investigation in August 1892. She denied hearing or seeing any signs of disturbance even though she was in the house, posited theories of the criminal's movements, and frequently suggested that the police would never catch the killer. 
Lizzie had made similar comments after the theft of jewelry and cash from her father and stepmother the year before. The police were baffled that Emma, Lizzie, and the family's maid, Bridget Sullivan, had not heard the thief enter the house, even though accessing the couple's bedroom would have required moving up the stairs and across the whole second level. I'm afraid the police will not be able to find the real thief, Andrew reportedly said. Andrew Borden dropped the charges and covered up the investigation, but rumors of tension within the house still swirled. Lizzie wanted more money than Andrew would give her, and now he was spending it on her stepmother. Adelaide Churchill had once known a life of luxury, but now she was forced to watch from the sidelines as her neighbors enjoyed the kind of wealth that had once been hers. She did not begrudge them their pleasures, but she couldn't stop herself from watching through the windows. Adelaide had been the first one on the block to admire Lizzie Borden's seal coat two years ago. She'd spied the gleaming animal skin through the house windows and felt a pang of envy. In the privacy of her own home, she draped an afghan around her shoulders, pretending it was as soft and sleek as Lizzie's new coat was. She was sure she looked foolish, but she felt important in that moment. Special, part of the glimmering world she'd lost access to long ago. There was one other avenue besides spying that would give her more access. Since the two were neighbors, she could always drop by for a casual conversation. Abby was perfectly delightful to speak with. The daughters, however, had a way about them that made you feel as though they were sharing some joke about you. Adelaide left most conversations with Lizzie, feeling like she'd missed something vital. Today, however, Lizzie stood in front of the house, pulling at the fabric of her dress with nervous hands. It looked like she needed someone to speak to. Adelaide could be that person, if only for an hour or two. She stepped out of her own house, immediately hit with the hot summer heat. Lizzie must have been sweating to death in her dress. But if she was, she didn't seem to notice. Adelaide dabbed her brow with her handkerchief, asking if Lizzie was all right. All color drained from Lizzie's face. Her grip tightened on her dress until her fingers were hard white. She turned to Adelaide, slowly. Adelaide felt like she was watching a phantom speak to her. But Lizzie's words proved she wasn't the phantom. Someone else was. Oh, Mrs. Churchill, do come over. Someone has killed father. There was a frankness to the words that worried Adelaide. While Lizzie looked devastated by the circumstances, her voice was so calm. She could have just as easily been asking Adelaide over for a pitcher of lemonade. In any case, Adelaide wasn't the police. She couldn't make the situation better. But she was gripped by curiosity. And really, the poor woman should not have to be alone at a time like this. So she headed into the house with Lizzie. They stayed in the kitchen together while Lizzie called for the doctor. Adelaide wandered toward the front of the kitchen. She checked to see if Lizzie was all right. She was sitting at the table, drumming her fingers against the wooden surface. Not nervous, just waiting. Adelaide crept out of the kitchen, through the sitting room, and into the parlor. 
legs were dangling off the couch. She took several steps closer and gasped when she got a full look. Lizzie had underplayed the savagery at work in this house. Half of Mr. Borden's face was unrecognizable. Crimson red blood dripped over his face. She could see the large slash marks from some kind of blade, mangling the bones with each impact. What was left of his face was oddly serene. His head was laid gently against a pillow, as if he was only sleeping. She stepped back into the kitchen. Lizzie looked at her expectantly. Adelaide shook her head. There were no words for a horror this great. Instead, she asked where Abby was. The poor woman must be reeling from the death of her beloved. Lizzie shrugged, saying that Abby was visiting someone in town. How strange that Lizzie had been the only one home but hadn't heard a thing. Lizzie explained that she had been taking refuge from the heat in the barn, not far from the house. Other neighbors came to sit with Lizzie. Through it all, Adelaide noticed that Lizzie's eyes were dry, as if she were simply hosting a luncheon. Adelaide could still see Mr. Borden's feet hanging over the couch. She could almost swear that one of them had twitched, but when she looked again, all was still. Someone else asked what had happened to Abby. Adelaide started to speak, but Lizzie beat her to it. This time, her story was different. Abby apparently came home after visiting a friend. Adelaide watched Lizzie carefully. The other woman's wide-eyed stare spoke in innocence that Adelaide was starting to doubt. Lizzie was close with her father. His death should have been a significant blow. Lizzie met Adelaide's gaze, her own stare unblinking. She asked Adelaide to see if Abby was still resting upstairs. Adelaide caught the barest slip of a smile on Lizzie's lips. She rose from her seat slowly to prove to herself and Lizzie that she wasn't afraid. She walked across the sitting room and through the parlor door. Mr. Borden's hollow eye watched her as she moved through the space. The other, dangling loosely out of its socket, stared off into nothingness. She arrived in the foyer, out of sight of Lizzie. She took the opportunity to wipe tears from her eyes. In front of her was the staircase to the second floor. It loomed ominously, daring her to ascend. She did not want to go up the steps. Something was horribly wrong. They should have heard from Abby at some point before now. The death of her husband was too great a loss. Adelaide took the first few steps slowly, pausing every time there was a creak. It occurred to her that whoever killed Mr. Borden could be lying in wait upstairs, waiting for his next victim. She strained on the tips of her toes, looking for some sign of life on the second floor. There was nothing to see yet. Adelaide took another step. Adelaide called out to Abby. There was nothing but silence. She blinked, and Abby was there, waiting at the top of the stairs, eyes sad and dark. She seemed not to realize Adelaide was there at all. Adelaide rushed up the next few steps, about to call out to her neighbor, when Abby wordlessly turned, heading into the guest bedroom. Puzzled, Adelaide pursued her, but Abby was gone. Adelaide's eyes surveyed the room 
looking for any sign of a possible exit. Then she looked at the floor. Abby was lying face down beside the bed. Adelaide rushed to her side. Abby's battered face was drowned in its own blood. She'd been left there, dying as she had lived. Alone, forgotten by her supposed family. Adelaide ran down the rest of the stairs and sprinted past Mr. Borden's body to make it back to the safety of the kitchen. The gathered women asked what she found. She waited for a moment, her eyes meeting Lizzie's. If she had known what had happened to her stepmother, she was giving no indication of it now. Adelaide told them that there was another dead body. But it was Lizzie's response that would haunt Adelaide even more than the horrors she'd seen. Oh, I shall have to go to the cemetery myself. The only testimony Lizzie Borden gave under oath took place on August 9th through 11th, 1892. Denied counsel since it was a closed inquest, she spoke while still under the influence of morphine, which had been prescribed to her to calm her nerves. Even with this caveat, her testimony is puzzling. Her account of the morning of August 4th constantly changed, from when or where she saw her father and stepmother, to how much time she spent in the barn behind the house. Her final alibi was that she had been in the barn's loft eating pears and making sinkers for fishing. When she entered the house again, she claimed, she found Andrew murdered in the parlor. The timeline of when Lizzie moved from the barn to the house was the primary matter at her trial. The Borden's Irish maid, Bridget Sullivan, was the best witness either side had to prove their case. Bridget, who Lizzie and Emma insisted on calling Maggie after their previous Irish immigrant housekeeper, said that she was washing windows at the time of the murder at Abby Borden's request. But Bridget may have known a lot more than she let on. The police claim that when they arranged to send out for a sheet to cover Andrew Borden's body, Bridget said, we'll need two, before Abby Borden's body was discovered. Bridget would eventually testify on Lizzie's behalf before leaving Fall River, settling on land she would never have been able to afford on her own. She never returned to her former workplace in life, but death seems to be another matter entirely. While the Bordens are certainly the house's most commonly reported ghosts, Bridget and her loyal cat also make appearances. They open and close doors, tromping around the halls as Bridget tries to keep the house to Abby, Emma, and Lizzie's exacting standards. Coming up, an acquittal leaves more questions than answers, and a spiritualist comes to call. Now, back to the story. Lizzie Borden was found not guilty on June 20th, 1893. Newspapers around the country lauded her acquittal as an act of justice, comparing the trial to a witch hunt by an overeager district attorney. Their prevailing theory was that either an embittered Bridget was guilty or that an outsider, potentially Lizzie's uncle, John B. Morse, infiltrated the house while Lizzie was in the barn. Lizzie asked Emma to take her back to their home the moment she was released, saying, I want to see the old place and settle down at once. But the Borden sisters didn't stay in their father's home for long. 
Lizzie used her inheritance to purchase a house in the Hill District of Fall River. It was the exact same neighborhood she demanded her father move them to shortly before his death. But the swiftness of their departure left more than a few questions. Lizzie's acquittal left the case unsolved, but a wide variety of locals still came to the police with tips. Perhaps the strangest was the series of psychic mediums who claimed to have spoken to Andrew Borden from the great beyond. Simon was not a crackpot. It was frustrating how often he had to say this. He had been consulted by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He had been cleared of any sign of fraud by numerous investigators, including the great Harry Price. Still, Lizzie Borden would not allow him to consult the spirits in her family's home. A lesser man might have considered this a sign of her guilt. But he was a scientist, and he refused to let anything but the voices of the great beyond to bias him. He chose to believe that the 66-year-old woman was just stubborn and private. It was a hot summer night as he approached 92 Second Street on the 1st of June. He wasn't technically breaking and entering if no one lived there. Lizzie lived across town, and the caregiver only came to check on the property once a week. The lock was easy enough to pick and the door swung open easily. As he stepped into the infamous parlor, his first thought was how underwhelming it was. Sure, there was some crown molding, but beyond that, it was remarkably small and unimpressive for the home of such a wealthy man. No matter, he had work to do. He brought out his talking board and his candles, he looked around for a way to dim the lights, then realized there were no electrical fixtures at all. Simon shrugged and pulled the curtains, shutting out the moon. He lit each candle in turn, allowing the flames to find their stillness. Only then did he place his hands on the planchette. It slid before he even asked a question. H O M E Home Simon looked up. He apologized, admitting that yes, he should have asked before entering. The planchette slid. Yes, the board replied. Simon cocked his head, a very fastidious spirit. Mrs. Borden? Mrs. Abby Borden? He called her name out into the darkness. Three candles went out, all at once, leaving tiny trails of smoke spiraling into the dark. Perhaps it was Andrew. He asked. The planchette slid again. No, the board answered. Strange. He knew of no one else who had died in the house. Perhaps it was one of his spirit guides, but before he could greet them, the planchette slid again. A, B, B, Y. Perhaps Mrs. Borden was confused, but he addressed her by her first name as she asked. He got straight to the point. You never knew when the spirits would be called away, and he needed to know who had killed her and her husband. The planchette slid. L, 
I. Well, that seemed promising. A clear answer, if not as explosive as he'd hoped. He waited patiently for Abby to confirm her stepdaughter's guilt. Z. L. L. The planchet began to slide faster. Choppy. E. A. V. E. It did it again. Faster and faster. Simon was not easily rattled. He was a professional. But there was something in the room with him he did not like. Something that had not been there when he entered. Or when he spoke with Mrs. Borden. Abby, he corrected himself. But even as he had the thought, he felt something cold and sharp against his face. He leapt to his feet. He tried to control his breathing in the dark, his eyes straining to discern shapes or movement. But when he got an answer, he didn't like it. A dark figure was coming down the stairs. The light of the candles flickered, dying one by one as the thing stepped closer, closer closer. As it crossed the threshold into the parlor, the last candle went out. Simon could hear nothing in the darkness, no footsteps, no breath, but he knew it was there, watching him, waiting. Something slammed against his nose, nearly breaking it. Simon yelped as blood began to trickle from his nostrils. He leapt up, desperately reaching out for the front door that had been swallowed up by shadows. Another cold, sharp object cut into his cheek. His skin was slick and sticky. He accidentally stepped on a still-dripping candle, sliding slightly before righting himself against the wall. He groped along the surface, desperately hoping he was going toward salvation rather than away as the unseen figure bore down on him. Simon stumbled into the front door. He threw it open and ran until he reached his hotel, climbed into bed, and pulled the covers up over his head like a child. It was only when he woke in the morning, rejoicing in the comforting light of day, that Simon heard the news. Lizzie Borden had passed away that night. Now converted to a combination bed and breakfast and museum, the former Borden home is a popular destination for ghost hunters and true crime enthusiasts. The tour guides have a campy but informative take on the information. They allow guests to pose with a rubber hatchet on a couch in the parlor that is a near-perfect look-alike for the crime scene photo of Andrew Borden. On the anniversary of the murders, the B&B hosts live reenactors playing the police or an agitated Bridget trying to avoid reporters. The staff go home after their two-hour night tour, leaving the guests to linger, socialize, and ghost hunt to their heart's content. They can even use the house's Ouija board, which has an enigmatic history of its own. It's rumored to have been returned after being stolen a few years ago, with a note reading, Please make it stop. While the national press may have been on Lizzie's side, the tide turned almost immediately in Fall River. People refused to attend church with her, and children frequently rang her doorbell only to run away, giggling in terror at having completed their friend's dares. 
she was frequently overcharged by store owners, and local newspapers wrote mocking articles on the anniversary of her father and stepmother's deaths. At one point, suggesting that Lizzie's name was officially cleared because the cause of death was really heat stroke. Lizzie seems to have taken it all in stride, renaming herself Lizbeth and living in Fall River for the remainder of her life, spending as lavishly as she'd hoped to when her father was alive. She left her Sunday school days behind and befriended, or perhaps dated, famous actress Nance O'Neill. She hosted raucous parties for Nance's theater company at her and her sister's garish new home, which they called Maplecroft. Emma Borden left the home abruptly in 1905, after remarking that she found the newly bohemian atmosphere in the house unbearable. The Borden sisters never spoke again, and Emma passed away nine days after Lizzie did, on June 1, 1927. Lizzie's estate would have been worth over $3.5 million today. Her will included a donation to the city of Fall River in order to provide for Andrew Borden's grave, as well as over $30,000 to the Animal Rescue League. In her will, Lizzie wrote, I've been fond of animals, and their need is great, and there are so few who care for them. In her book, The Trial of Lizzie Borden, Kara Robertson quotes Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter to address the question of why Lizzie would stay in the town that had made her a pariah. There's a fatality, a feeling so irresistible and inevitable that it has the force of doom, which almost invariably compels human beings to linger around and haunt, ghost-like, the spot where some great and marked event has given color to their lifetime. And still, the more irresistibly, the darker the tinge that saddens it. The ghostly figures and late-night disturbances heard at the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast may be nothing but the shadows of a suggestible mind in a place of great tragedy. But it's easy to extend Hawthorne's words to the house at large. 92 Second Street was always a site of tension and sadness, and the wait has carried on beyond the Borden's time there. Abby is said to darken doorways, observing to make sure everything's in order while Andrew seems to go on about his day, not realizing he's dead. Lizzie and Emma Borden died far away from home, but have been seen repeatedly, with Lizzie appearing most frequently in the house's basement, cleaning the hatchet she used to kill her parents. The murders of Andrew and Abby Borden are considered to be some of America's most famous unsolved crimes, but if the spirits at the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast are any indication, what happened there is obvious. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. For more information on the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast Museum, we found The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Cara Robertson extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. 
to stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Travis Clark. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache. With writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>